Welcome to episode 289 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. 
I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every Every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 289 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hi, Melanie. I have a question for you, Cynthia. Okay. So this episode actually airs on Halloween. So I have two questions. One question is like, how do you feel about Halloween? Like, is it one of the holidays where you go all out or not so much? And then I have a 
like a fasting food related question to it. But I guess first, yeah, what's Halloween like in your family? Well, I can tell you that when my kids were younger, so they're teenagers now, when they were younger, we went all out, you know, decorating the house and getting all, you know, excited about their costumes. And now they're teenagers. And, you know, I think my my 15-year-old, who's a freshman, he'll probably go out with his buddies. My older son will probably stay home and want to hand out candy. But in our neighborhood, our new neighborhood, people are like serious they have some serious Halloween displays, like to the point where people are spending thousands of dollars on, you know, two-story skeletons that light up or animated and spiders. And so it's it's interesting. I don't think last year, I think I was so consumed by having just gotten into the house and the book launch and all those things that I didn't pay as much attention. But there's some serious decorating game in our neighborhood. But we just have like mums and pumpkins <laughs> like fall flowers and, you know, a few kind of like, I would say in terms of decor, we have a lot of pumpkins inside our house. I mean, I do enjoy decorating for the fall. It is my favorite season, but in comparison to my neighbors, we're probably like low into the game. Like it's, it's impressive in our neighborhood. I should take some photos and share them on Instagram. Oh, please do. I love looking at that stuff. And I love Halloween because I like creepy, fun, like fun Halloween movies. I mean, I love all of that. I like being scared about things that are highly improbable. I don't like the stuff that is creepy and potentially could happen, but I was one of those kids that loved Stephen King movies and loved being creeped out. You know, kids of the eighties, we had like children of the corn and all the Stephen King movies. And so I love like suspenseful, scary stuff, but my husband, not so much. So we don't get to watch a lot of those movies unless I want to watch them by myself. How about you? Yeah, I'm all about it. So growing up, I loved it. I love the decorations. I'm just thinking now, though, about the timeline of like, because when you're a kid, you get to dress up. And then I remember wanting to still dress up in like high school, probably. And my parents being like, you're too old for this. Or like, I remember the last year I wanted to go trick or treating. I don't know what age it was. And my parents were like, you can't go. And I was like, yes, I can. (laughs) And then it's funny because then you go into the dry period, I feel, of Halloween. But then when you become an adult, it gets fun again. Like, <laughs> I'm really excited. My sister and I are going to dress up like Anna and Elsa from Frozen. Oh, I love it. I literally ordered, I think, seven Frozen costumes because I have to find the perfect one. And I think I'm going to combine two. Like, I think I'm actually going to use, like, I found this gorgeous blue prom dress, like all sequins. And I think I'm going to combine it with a Elsa costume to make like the perfect costume. I love the dedication. For like an hour last night, I was trying them on and then I would go to my computer and watch the Let It Go song on YouTube and like stare at the costume and try to figure out like what color it was exactly. And then like stare at the costumes and figure out if I could cut them up and I don't know how to sew. So we'll see (laughs) how this goes. But I love your dedication. I think that's awesome. I mean, I would say that I'm I'm a big fan of adults enjoying the process of Halloween. And I was just at an event in Scottsdale and like the first big night of this event, it was like a costume party with a theme. And truth be told, I'm not like a big costume person. Like I'm all game for having fun with my friends, but I bought like the bare minimum costume accessories and just decided it's Scottsdale. It's like a hundred degrees. I don't want to be anything that I have to wear too much clothing. I don't want to wear something super skimpy. And so I loved seeing how 
like some people really get into the costume theme. And I just, I marvel at the creativity of people. Like I really do. And I just love to just watch. Like, I think it's so interesting. Was this where I saw the costume from Jen? Yes. I took a video and sent it to Melanie of Jen. (laughs) It's on Jen's Instagram, I think. I laughed so much. Please, listeners, (laughs) please go look at Jen Jen Stevens' Instagram. (laughs) She was so excited about her costume, too. She was like, wait till you see my costume. And I literally, she had the best time. Like, she looked so happy. It's so funny. I I couldn't figure it out at first when you sent me the video. I was like, wait, what? Like, it literally looks like from the video you sent, it literally looks like not a costume. Like, it looks like she's, I don't even know. It's an alien abduction costume for listeners. So I would always go the, like, I always want to find the costume that's attractive. Like, I want (laughs) to, like a, like a girly girl costume is what I always go for. Although one year when I was a kid, I dressed up like a marshmallow and everybody thought I was a roll of toilet paper, <laughs> which is appropriate given all my bowel issues I have these days. That That is humorous. There, there is def- most definitely a theme. So really last quick rapid fire question. Did you ever, because Halloween is very centered around like candy and all of that. How did you handle that with your kids growing up? And did you ever get into the, you know, some people will hand out like healthy treats or they'll do like the snack swap thing. So it's interesting. So my older son has peanut and tree nut allergies. So that has always kind of been a concern, like exposure, cross-contamination. And when he was little, we could bring all the candy home and go through it. And my husband loves Snickers bars. So he would keep all the Snickers bars for himself. And, you know, we would, whatever the age the kids were, that's how many pieces of candy they kept. Well, they got to a point where they started to eat the candy while they were trick-or-treating because they knew they could then consume more. I tend to be very much a realist. And when my kids were preschool age, early elementary school age, yeah, I could hand out like healthy treats. And it was always like a healthier version of the kind of conventional Halloween candy. And then I just got to a point where I was like, you know what? Most people don't appreciate it. I'm spending exorbitant amounts of money. And really what's most important is making sure that my kids are not eating this stuff 24-7. So... I've relaxed some of my rules. I have some hard and fast about certain things. Like I've actually, I, I can't actually buy Halloween candy early because the teenagers will find it. It doesn't matter where I put it. It's almost like they have a beacon. They find it. I mean, it, it becomes a running joke. Like we can't even, my husband can't even keep like a clean peanut butter cup in the house because the 15 year old finds it and just to spite him will eat it. <laughs> so in my house, I'm very much, it's one day out of the year. I let them enjoy themselves. I don't allow them to keep candy in their rooms, which they did one year when we were living in a rental and I didn't know any better because we have dogs. And I'm like, what if the dogs get into it and they get sick? That's a problem. But, you know, I I think for everyone that's out there, it's one day. And, you know, I tend to buy the candy that I don't like. So it's never tempting, which drives my husband crazy. He's like, I don't understand that, that reasoning, that thought process. I said, it's simple. If I buy stuff I don't like, I'm not going to eat it. I won't even be tempted to eat it. So what is that? What do you not like? Most stuff. Because I don't feel good when I eat it. So like, I don't, I don't, I'm not attracted to Snickers or Reese's peanut butter cups. So I can buy that stuff, but it's like crack for my husband. So I have to be very balanced. I try to give all the candy away. That's my other strategy. Give it all away. Then you don't have any left. You know, things like Skittles that are horrible. (laughs) I just... I never liked Skittles either. They gave me a headache. Yeah. Well, there's so many artificial colors and... 
God knows what else. So, so to me, my strategy is I buy stuff like Liam is my 15 year old and usually he comes with me to purchase said candy. And I always tell him my methodology is we buy, I buy stuff that I don't like, and then it's not tempting at all, which he doesn't agree with at all, but he'll usually direct me to like, what do the kids like right now? So he's my, he's my conductor, but the goal is to get rid of all the candy. Like I'm the parent that is handing out handfuls of candy to get rid of it which, you know, everyone loves to come to our house because I'm giving out some, I'm like, I don't want to take any home into my house. And the other thing in my neighborhood that's interesting, everyone has very long driveways. So usually people are at the end of their driveway to hand out said candy. It's very orderly. Oh, whoa. They like wait out there? Yeah. So most people set up tables at the end of their driveway. So Tables? <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, I've got a lot. I've got a very long driveway. So it, it, it's actually nice. And the other thing is people here, like people are not trick-or-treating late at night. So when it gets dark, usually everything ends, which is wonderful. Cause the last neighborhood I was in, you'd get your doorbell, you know, nine, ten o'clock at night. Kids were still coming around. So here not as much, and they're younger. So the parents take them out early, which is fantastic. So it's a quite an interesting process, but I love seeing all the costumes and getting rid of all of the Thurlow candy, which my family doesn't agree with, but I do. I totally forgot about this. I guess I really always have been an entrepreneur. So I used to, before Halloween, I would go stock up on all the candy and I had these like little vending machine things. They were so cute. I had two of them and I'd fill them up with candy and then I would sell candy to my brother and sister. And then I didn't find out until literally like adulthood that they would sneak into my room and steal my candy. I didn't know that. They were getting away with it. Yeah, I would sell it for like, you know, like a dime, like a Snickers bar. That's hilarious. I would actually love listeners to write in and even though it'll be after Halloween, but I'd be really curious to hear how people handle candy and Halloween in their lives with their family. I think it's all about balance. I think people, when they get really rigid, like there were years where they'd have the switch witch or... You know, when your kids are really young and they have no clue what's going on, that's very different than when they're like very vested in the candy game and parties and trick-or-treating and they have an agenda and they Halloween trick-or-treating independently of their parents. You have to just like release some control, like in all honesty, that's the best method. Pick your battles. I think that's really important because you can't control everything. So you might as well like zone in on one or two things that's important and like trust that your children will make good choices. I think that's very good advice. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 15% off my favorite blue light blocking glasses ever. So I am often asked what are my favorite quote biohacking products and something I truly honestly cannot imagine my life without are blue light blocking glasses. So in today's modern environment, we are massively overexposed to blue light. It's a stimulating type of light, which can lead to stress, anxiety, headaches, and in particular, sleep issues. Blue light actually stops our bodies from producing melatonin, which is our sleep hormone. So our exposure to blue light can completely disrupt our circadian rhythm, make it hard to fall asleep, make it hard to stay asleep, and so much more. Friends, I identify as an insomniac. I would not be able to sleep without my blue light blocking glasses. I also stay up late working and wearing blue light blocking glasses at night has made it so I can do that and still fall asleep. My absolute favorite blue light blocking glasses on the market are Bon Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks. 
Bond Charge makes an array of blue light blocking glasses in all different designs so you can truly find something that fits your style and reap all of the benefits of blue light blocking. They have their clear computer glasses. You can wear those during the day, especially if you're looking at screens all day to help with anxiety, headaches, and stress. They have their light sensitivity glasses. Those are tinged with a special yellow color, scientifically proven to boost mood, and they block even more blue light. Those are great for the day or evening. And then they have their blue light blocking glasses for sleep. Those are the ones that I put on at night while working before bed. Oh my goodness, friends. It's something you truly have to experience. You put on these glasses and it's like you just tell your brain, okay, it's time to go to sleep soon. They also have amazing blackout sleep masks. Those block 100% of light with zero eye pressure. I wear this every single night and I don't know how I would sleep without it. And you can get 15% off site-wide. Just go to bondcharge.com and use the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com with the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. All right, now back to the show. Shall we jump into some questions for today? Sure. So to start things off, we have a question from Amanda, and the subject is insulin release. And Amanda says, hello there. I enjoy your podcast so much. I have been listening and fasting since January 2020, and I've made my way through all of the episodes. You're my favorite podcast, and I listen to a lot. Anyway, I recently watched a YouTube video with Dr. Mindy Peltz, where she says you can test if something is breaking your fast by checking your blood sugar prior to having insert item here, and then after having whatever you are testing. I decided to check to see if coffee is causing a response. I drink it black, but I drink Dunkin' Donuts brand coffee and it's caramel coffee cake flavor. I don't think it has a sweet taste, but I was curious if it is causing any response. I checked my blood sugar at around 6 a.m. prior to my coffee. This would have been 12 hours fasted. I was shocked to see my blood sugar was 122. I'm not diabetic and have never had an abnormal fasting blood sugar when tested at the doctor's office. Is it the dawn phenomenon? I'm confused. I'm a nurse, and in my world, this would be concerning. Anyway, I went ahead and drank my coffee, and around 7 a.m., I rechecked my blood sugar, and it was 112. Now, Dr. Peltz said, if you see an increase by 5 to 10, that would mean you had a response. In my mind, I'm thinking that the decrease could be a response too. If I had an insulin response, wouldn't that lower my blood sugar? The coffee may not spike my blood sugar, but cause an insulin response, therefore lowering it. I hope I made that clear enough to understand. What I'm not sure about is if my result of 122 was caused by the dawn phenomenon. I checked it around 6 a.m. And from my understanding, that occurs between 4 to 8 a.m. Wouldn't it be on the decrease when I checked it later at 7? I did check again around 9 a.m. and it was 114. I was still drinking my coffee, second cup. I'm just curious on what you two think and if anyone has ever brought this up. If it helps, I'm 36 years old. I've been fasting since January 2020. I started out 18.6 and I've worked up to one meal a day. I fast every day and love it. I can't thank you ladies enough for all you have taught me, Amanda. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for all of your support and the fact that you get so much out of the podcast. There are a lot of things that I I think about as I'm reading and listening to your question. First and foremost, where are you in your menstrual cycle? Because you're going to be less insulin sensitive heading into your luteal phase and especially the week before your menstrual cycle. Are you using a glucometer or are you using a continuous glucose monitor? 
if you are using a glucometer, has it been calibrated? Does it need to be calibrated? It's not typical that your blood sugar per se would go down after consuming a potentially, and I don't know what the caramel coffee cake flavor is, the potentiality of perhaps an artificial sugar or whatever that is flavored with, I would imagine it would probably break your fast. But it, there's there's so many things here that it's hard for me to say because fasting blood sugar is only one piece of the puzzle. I think really looking at fasting insulin and looking at other inflammatory markers is certainly more helpful. Just one or two blood sugar values to me doesn't give a full clinical picture. Dawn phenomena, yes, that is a real thing. Typically, I don't see that in insulin-sensitive individuals that are young, not with any great regularity. I saw quite a bit of it in the hospital with older, even middle-aged or older patients. So I would say at this point, where are you in your cycle? Is it a glucometer? Has it been calibrated? Is it a CGM? Where are you in your cycle? I mean, the other thing is you're 36 years old, so you're, you're obviously still very young. And, you know, we have to remember that intermittent fasting is a form of hormesis. So it is a hormetic stressor in the right amount at the right time. You're also doing OMAD, which I know that it may not be as popular for me to express this opinion on the podcast, but I, I just think that that's not the right strategy for a younger woman. And I get concerned that you're not getting enough protein macronutrients in particular into such a tight feeding window. And that in and of itself could potentially be of concern. So there's a lot of different variables. And it could be that, you know, maybe your glucometer needs to be calibrated. It could be that simple. So if we know you're insulin sensitive, if you haven't had a fasting insulin checked, I would definitely ask your primary care provider to do that. It's a very inexpensive test. It runs about $12. It is covered by insurance. A lot of traditional allopathic trained providers don't know how to interpret it, but we want to see that value between two to five. That's ideally what we're looking for. And that's actually a better biomarker for insulin sensitivity than a fasting blood sugar. What are your thoughts, Melanie? Yes, I would piggyback and agree that because it sounds like she might be doing a CGM, but probably not. I would definitely recommend Amanda doing a two week trial at least of a CGM. And just to define it, it's basically a sensor that you very easily apply to your arm. I have videos on my Instagram of what it looks like to put it on, and it will continuously monitor your blood sugar over 24 hours. And the benefit of that is that you will see the slope and the curve of what is actually happening in the morning with, you know, that wake up dawn phenomenon, as well as the coffee and everything thereafter. And you'll also see the entire 24 hours, the impact of your blood sugar levels and what your average is. So we actually do have a coupon code for the podcast. So if you go to nutrisense.io slash IF podcast, the code IF podcast will get you $30 off any subscription to a CGM program. So that definitely might be helpful. So at least what I've experienced and what I've seen a lot of people share is that especially if they're having a dawn phenomenon response in the morning, which basically what it is, is a cortisol release in the morning that is prepping your body to get ready to move. <laughs> and so the purpose is to release glycogen from the liver. So you release stored sugar, stored glucose, and that's what causes that spike. And it's that's normal. What I've seen and what I think a lot of people see is if you do have that spike and it's up, and then on top of that, you have coffee, especially if you're having coffee for a while, coffee also 
because of the caffeine causes the liver to dump glycogen. So I think it can basically not give your body a chance to like bring those blood sugars down and maybe even perpetuate it a little bit. So that might be what is happening. If you got a CGM, an experiment you could try is you could try, you know, a day with coffee and a day without coffee and see what's happening with all of that. Yeah. And it might be a situation where you realize that having your coffee in a slightly different pattern is actually more beneficial for your blood sugar. So maybe it's not, you know, sipping it as long, or maybe it's just having the caffeinated one and switching to decaf or something like that. And then I wanted to point out a few other just quick comments. One is that I like to clarify because we always talk about things breaking the fast which is true. Like things can create an insulin response. I just like to clarify that your body can have those responses to things that people wouldn't consider breaking the fast. This is kind of like just an esoteric conversation about this topic, but the example would be you could go do some high intensity exercise and have the same blood sugar raising effects or you could go do some breathing exercises and have the same blood sugar lowering effects. So I I just like to point out that I guess the reason I'm pointing this out is you're still fasted is my point. I do think it's very important to have a quote clean fast, you know, water, coffee and not take in things like these flavored coffees, but I just like to add that subtle nuance because I think people think that they're like not fasted anymore, which is not true. The way you're not fasted is by eating food. That said, I have a little story to share. I recently released an episode with Mark Schatzker. He wrote a book called The Dorito Fact, as well as The End of Craving. And it's honestly been one of my most fascinating interviews to date. I've talked about it a lot in this show. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But he talks a lot in his book about the role of these artificial flavors. And after reading it, you <laughs> it makes you very hesitant about taking them in. Basically, they're very confusing signals to our bodies. And he makes the case that they could be doing a lot of metabolic damage. And I actually had an experience recently. So I had bought some like artificial cake flavor and I had it in my refrigerator. And it was for, I was like, if I ever have like a holiday or something, or like my birthday, I'm going to make like the paleo birthday cake flavored thing. And I'm going to use this flavoring. So it was in my refrigerator and I was cleaning out my refrigerator and I broke the bottle. And so it spilled all over my kitchen. And I was thinking about Mark's book because he talks about the potency of that flavoring chemical and how potent it is. And that smell, my whole apartment smelled like Disney World for like, because you know they, you know how Disney smells like, what, would you go to Disney ever, Cynthia? I haven't been there since my kids were four and six. Oh, Disney's like the place my family like is obsessed with. I don't know if you remember, like Main Street smells like a baked cookie, basically. So my whole apartment smelled like Disney World. And I had a headache for three days. And after that, I was like, I can't believe I've been like ingesting this. If just smelling it is making me feel this way. So just a little cautionary tale about removing these, if possible, if you're open to it, removing artificial flavors. Any other thoughts from you? No, I think it's like much like anything. I, I used to tell patients that I never took one or two values unless it's an exception. I never really took it at face value. It was like, okay, we need more information before we can determine what's going on. And there's so many things that can impact blood sugar and food consumption. And all these things can definitely be impacted by many, many variables. Yes, I agree. I didn't know this until 
sort of recently. They make at home, like it's kind of like a glucometer, but it's HbA1c tests. I don't know if I find a lot. I I honestly don't see a ton of value in A1Cs anymore. I think when they came out 20 years ago, it was such a, you know, it was such a remarkable test. And now I really lean into other biomarkers like fasting insulin, uric acid, that I think provide a much more comprehensive picture of what could potentially be going on. It doesn't mean that, you know, does it help? It certainly doesn't hurt, but... I think there are other blood values that I, I think are far more important, even triglycerides, HDL, you know, that is more valuable to me. Yeah, I think it's a problem because of the, like the false, it can be like, well, it's not false positive, false negative, because it's not black and white like that. But, you know, the implications of your actual red blood cells can affect like the size of them and how long they're sticking around, like their longevity can affect the readings. I think the value is if you're regularly testing HbA1c, then you would, you know, presumably you could see over time if you're like having a significant drop or rise in general. I think that's probably the most benefit. So shall we go on to our next question? Absolutely. Our next question is from Vanessa. Hi, Cynthia and Melanie. I love your podcast. I listen all of the time and learn something new every time. This morning on my commute, I listened to episode 162, where you discuss at length some studies. I enjoyed listening to the discussion so much. I'm at the end of a graduate program and reading studies has been my life for the last few years. I love that you normalize how complicated research can be while at the same time sticking with it and then bringing us the information. Thank you for being women with high standards. In my Google Chrome feed, I came across this study and would love to hear your thoughts. From what I gathered, autophagy protects, if not reverses, atherosclerosis. If this is true, this is super exciting as heart disease runs in my family. I came to intermittent fasting for weight loss and have found a way of life that has surpassed my expectations as far as health benefits. Thank you so much, Vanessa. All right, Vanessa, thank you for your question. So this is a great question. So the article that she sent us a link to was... Very specific, very granular, and it's a rodent study. The title is Non-Canonical Inhibition of Caspase 3 by Nuclear MicroRNA Confers Endothelial Protection by Autophagy and Athero... I can never say this word for my life, um, atherosclerosis. I know. I remember when I was recording my book, I have that word in it a few times, and it's like the word I just can't say. In any case, so this was published in Science Translation Medicine in June 2020. So I looked at it briefly, and honestly, it was very specific. It was about very specific pathways in rodents and autophagy and the role in that word I can't say. So I decided I, <laughs> I decided it would be more beneficial to um, look at other research rather than this specific study. And so I found a really good journal article that I'll put a link in the show notes to. It's called Role of Autophagy in Atherosclerosis, <laughs> Foe or Friend. It's 2019 May in the Journal of Inflammation, London. And I read all of it. It is very long. It's very interesting. I learned a lot about autophagy that I did not know. It goes into the all the different types of autophagy and all of the different immune-related factors involved, like macrophages and cytokines and things like that. And the basic takeaway is that autophagy... Oh, and what is autophagy? Let me define that for people. So autophagy is basically a process in the body where 
the body recycles old and damaged proteins. It's a cleanup process. So it helps clean up ourselves, you know, get rid of waste, keep things fresh and new. And the process can actually just get rid of those materials or they can be recycled into new materials. So it's used ongoing as a cleanup process. People think that you only get autophagy from fasting, which is just not true. (laughs) It's happening all the time. Not some of the time, all of the time. It's ramped up by things like exercise, even coffee ramps it up, different compounds ramp it up. I'm going to circle back to that. It's normal purpose is like a cleanup. And then when you're under times of intense stress, it gets a dual purpose in that it can actually be used to create building blocks for the body and energy. So that's why fasting in particular can further activate it. It's interesting. I was listening to Peter Tia's most recent episode, I think, and he was talking more about his feelings on fasting and autophagy. And he said, I don't know if I agree with him on this, but he said he doesn't think fasting even creates any measurable difference of note in autophagy that you'd have to like fast a really long time. I don't know the extent to which it's upregulated from like a daily type of fast, but it is a good thing to consider. All of that said, back to the question. So for its role in atherosclerosis, it seems that in the beginning stages for people who have it, it is probably pretty beneficial in reducing inflammation potentially mitigating that progression and being helpful. It has the potential to actually become inflammatory in later stages. And that's because the autophagy process, just basically it can go a little bit awry and actually create more inflammation rather than less. And I don't want to scare people away from it, but that was the conclusion of this article. I think in general, it's something that Like I wouldn't focus on autophagy as the thing to address this. I would focus on a healthy diet and lifestyle. And I think that will support an anti-inflammatory state and that will support autophagy in the way you want it. I wouldn't get too distracted by it, if that makes sense. What are your thoughts, Cynthia? Ironically enough, I just interviewed Dr. Stephen Hussey talking about the heart and talking about cardiovascular disease. And for that discussion, I was like knee deep in the role of the metabolic theory of cancer and Otto Warburg and the role of mitochondrial dysfunction and what's really at the basis for atherosclerosis. And Dr. Hussey is like this young, he he has type 1 diabetes, but young guy who had a, a negative coronary artery calcification score. He had a zero and then went on to have a heart attack like six months later for a variety of different reasons. But why this is particularly relevant is that I think a lot of the kind of modern day thought process about what causes atherosclerosis is so far off base than what actually creates it. We know it's related to oxidative stress and free radicals and glycation and really looking at the role of endotoxemia and heavy metals and how these things all kind of interwoven together. I'm tongue-tied myself. And, And really at the basis of all this is metabolic inflexibility. And what's one of the things that can help with metabolic flexibility is intermittent fasting vis-a-vis through a lot of different processes. As you mentioned, autophagy is one of them, but I really think our modern day lifestyles are contributing to a lot of what we're seeing. And if we reflect back on the fact that autophagy can be upregulated by many things, not just fasting, but understanding that eating less frequently is a way to promote or to reduce inflammation, reduce oxidative stress, 
improve insulin sensitivity. It just makes sense to me intellectually as a clinician that this would validate this. And I think there's more and more research coming out that's really looking at what are the drivers of atherosclerosis. One of the things that that Dr. Hussey talked about is that as an example, and we talk about aura rings and heart rate variability a lot, but HRV is the best measure of stress response. And I, I think that was really surprising. And, and looking at an imbalance in the, in the autonomic nervous system, Remember, one is fight or flight, that's sympathetic, and then rest and repose when we can poop and, you know, have an orgasm and digest our food and detoxify, that this imbalanced stress response is another big contributor to why we are seeing escalating rates of atherosclerosis and heart attacks. And I'll just mention a couple statistics that I, quite frankly, was stupefied by. By 2035, 130 million people in the U.S. will have some form of coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis. The annual direct and indirect costs of MI and and stroke are $329.7 billion a year. That came out of circulation. And lastly, in 2018, there were 720,000 first-time myocardial infarcts, which are heart attacks, and 335,000 recurrent MIs in the U.S., So I love that Vanessa addressed this atherosclerosis piece because it really does impact all of us, whether or not you yourself, but more than likely with those statistics, you know of someone, either someone you're related to, someone you're friends with, someone you care about that's in your sphere of influence is going to be impacted by vascular disease. Maybe that's easier to say it that way. We used to call it CAD or CVD. Cardiovascular disease is really, you know, it's an easier way of saying that but really an important thing to consider. And it's one of many reasons why I think upregulating autophagy with fasting or other types of hormesis is really incredibly beneficial. I think a lot of us want to focus on the body composition and the changes in you know weight loss, but really it's deeper than that. Two points to that. One is, because interestingly, that study I linked to on autophagy it didn't mention fasting once. So it was talking about the role of fasting, like I mentioned, happening as an ongoing process all the time anyways. And so I would imagine, I know I talked about how it concluded that autophagy could be a detrimental in the later stages of... So is cardiovascular disease the same thing as atherosclerosis? Mm-hmm. We don't call it... I mean, we really... It's called cardio. So we used to call it coronary artery disease. Atherosclerosis can be diffuse. So it could be carotid arteries, peripheral vascular disease, carotid, you know, coronary artery disease, atherosclerosis can occur in any vascular vessel. Okay. Gotcha. So yeah. So I think the important context here would be autophagy in the context of fasting would be as well in an anti-inflammatory state compared to what it's talking about in that article, which is just the autophagy process not in that anti-inflammatory state. So that might be something to keep in mind. Watch what a link in the show notes. That interview sounds really, really fascinating. I'm glad you brought that up about the cardiac scores because that's something that I feel like, especially like in the low carb world and like often I see it in the um, carnivore world or people on like really, really high saturated fat diets. And then they'll say, but I have a, you know, zero score, but really when it comes to that, when you're young, you should have a zero score. Like if you don't, there's like a major issue. And then it can be argued that if you don't have a zero score, like things are already really bad. So it's not like the thing where you slowly start to see it progress. It's like it goes from zero to like there's an issue. So I wouldn't rest in the seeming safety of a 
cardiac score, which I think was demonstrated by that guy's heart attack. Yeah, no, and he's like 32. So I think it's the diabetes plus some other factors that he talked about, but really sobering. Yeah, those stats are really intense. And right before we go on to our next question, I wanted to mention one more thing. I was so excited when I was reading that article because it actually had a section on compounds that upregulate autophagy. And the first one it mentioned was resveratrol, which is the compound that is made famous by red wine. And you guys know I love red wine. But then even more exciting, the second compound it mentioned was berberine, which made me so excited because the next supplement that I'll be releasing for Avalon X is actually berberine. Going back to Amanda's question, if she is experiencing blood sugar issues, I realized we didn't even give her suggestions on what to do there. And first and foremost, I think dietary approaches are paramount when it comes to blood sugar control. So looking at your diet and finding the diet that works with you. And again, that's a reason that a a CGM can be so helpful because you can try out different dietary approaches and see how they're affecting your blood sugar levels. And after or in junction or on top of something like berberine might be really helpful. So it is actually a plant compound, an alkaloid, and it rivals the effects of metformin. And metformin is the primary prescribed medication for blood sugar issues, diabetes. So it has the blood sugar lowering effects of metformin without the side effects. Like I said, it's a natural plant compound. People often focus on it for the blood sugar lowering effects. I personally take it. I take one gram every morning. And when I started doing that, I saw a really nice effect on my blood sugar levels, but it has so many other benefits as well. So It actually has a lot of metabolic health benefits. So I found one study that was talking about how it didn't reduce body weight, but it actually created a redistribution of fat. So people ended up having less visceral fat, which is the inflammatory type of fat surrounding the organs. And it's been shown to potentially have anti-cancer benefits. And then going back to the topic that we were talking about, that article was talking about how it actually is a very potent stimulator of autophagy. So it's very exciting. So that will be coming out sooner rather than later. So to get text updates for that, you can go to avalonx.us slash email list, or you can text avalonx to 877-861-8318. And when you sign up for text updates, not only will you get all of the latest specials and news because there will be a launch special, you also get a 20% off code when you sign up there. Hi friends, we are so honored to be sponsored in part today by Nutrisense. You guys hear us talk about continuous glucose monitors, aka CGMs, all the time on this show. And in particular, we love Nutrisense, and here is why. Nutrisense not only provides a 24-7 moving picture of your glucose values, they also offer a unique opportunity for self-discovery. So imagine this, you have a meal and then you notice a spike in your glucose levels. So you think, hmm, that didn't go well. But here's the magic. Tomorrow, you can make a simple change. You can swap whatever you were eating for something else. Now you have real-time data to evaluate the impact. Maybe instead of that fruit, you have some vegetables. Maybe instead of that oatmeal, you have some yogurt. Maybe instead of that steak, you have some fruit. The continuous feedback loop that you can get with a Nutrisense CGM empowers you to make quick, informed iterations with your meals. 
Maybe the change results in a completely normal glucose level, or maybe it's still a little bit high, but significantly better. Armed with this knowledge, you can refine your choices further, rapidly steering your glucose values back to the normal range. Without a continuous glucose monitor, honestly, you're just guessing and assuming that what you're doing is working. And when you go test your blood sugar levels at the doctor, that's just a snapshot of that one moment in time. It's not telling you what actually was happening throughout the day all the time. What makes NutriSense truly transformative is its ability to create lasting habits and intrinsic motivation. So instead of relying on generic advice from professionals or online sources or us, you have personalized real-time data from your own body. When you see the direct impact of your choices, it will resonate on a whole new level. This newfound awareness becomes the driving force, making it easier than ever to stay motivated and committed to your health journey. I promise you friends, it's like opening your eyes to the secret to lasting change because it gives you this empowering knowledge that you just didn't have before. So if you're looking to take charge of your health, gain real insights into your body and make sustainable, positive changes, NutriSense is your ultimate partner. Join them and us on this journey of discovery and unlock your full health potential. Get started today at NutriSense.com slash podcast and receive a $30 discount off of your first month, which includes two CGM sensors, free shipping and professional nutritionist support. That's nutrisense.com slash IF podcast for a $30 discount off your first month with two CGM sensors, free shipping and professional nutritionist support, which by the way, I get a lot of feedback on just how helpful that nutritionist support is. It's so easy. You can talk to them in real time in the app and they can really help you make sense of all the data that you receive from your continuous glucose monitor. NutriSense.com slash podcast. And I am just so grateful to NutriSense for helping support today's show. So we have a question from Angela. Subject is PMDD. And Angela says, I have PMDD. I was diagnosed in November of 2018. I was put on Prozac for 14 days a month. It helped for two months, then stopped working. I first started IF doing mostly 16-8 in July of 2019. I did great until October. My symptoms greatly decreased. Then I slowly started closing my window sooner and sooner until I was back to my old eating ways, which is eating all day long. I gained back all the weight I had lost, about 15 pounds. January of 2020, I decided to try it again. It's now March, so I've been through two cycles of PMDD, and I was curious as to how long you would think it would take the food cravings to go away. The food cravings during those two weeks from ovulation to the start of the menstrual cycle are like no other cravings. They are worse than my pregnancy cravings. I do so good with 16-8 during two weeks, then that hit and bam, it's so hard to stick with IF. Please give me any suggestions that might help. I've tried keeping busy, drinking more water, eating more protein. IF has seemed to help all the other symptoms from PMDD besides the food cravings. Sorry for jumping all around, but I desperately need help. Okay. Well, Angela, my heart goes out to you. And for listeners that are not familiar with PMDD, this is the most severe form of premenstrual symptoms. And, you know, first and foremost, I have to give you a lot of credit that you are being so diligent about trying to determine what is exacerbating your symptoms. If you're at all familiar with my work, I'm, I'm not really a fan of women doing a lot of fasting prior to their menstrual cycle, especially five to seven days preceding that. You could certainly do 12 hours of fasting. I would also look very closely at what you're eating. Are you really leaning into enough protein? Because those powerful cravings could very well be that you need more 
high quality carbohydrate along with high quality protein. I actually did a podcast with Dr. Chris Palmer, which unfortunately I can't release until November. His publisher has made it very clear that they don't want his podcast being released until the week of publication, but he is a Harvard trained psychiatrist and he has a very unique lens on mental health issues and metabolic health. And so we had a really vibrant discussion about the interrelationship between the foods that we're eating, the types of neurotransmitters that we're creating. And a lot of those neurotransmitters are predominantly created in the gut. So I would really be thinking about gut health, the types and qualities of foods that you're consuming. So leaning into protein, high quality carbohydrates, which are going to be the unprocessed variety, healthy fats. You may benefit from getting some testing done to look at the gut microbiome. I'm a huge fan of the GI map or even working with an integrative medicine or functional medicine physician or nurse practitioner to dive a little bit deeper because it sounds like your symptoms are really significant. And I do think there are other ways of tackling PMDD, but absolutely positively no fasting the week before your menstrual cycle. That explains why you're saying I feel good in my follicular phase when I'm fasting and I don't feel good. I feel like I'm really struggling with fasting and that's your body's way of telling you we need to liberalize what you're doing. The other thing that I would really encourage you to do is make sure that you are working with someone that can do a proper evaluation and testing. I know you tried Prozac before. There are other drugs that may be of benefit. There are newer SSRIs that are out there as well as other types of treatment modalities. And again, I wish Dr. Palmer's podcast episode with me would be out concurrently with when this is released, but definitely look for that in November. I think he's really making incredible strides, making the interrelationship between mental health issues and also metabolic health, that they're all very closely interrelated. Awesome. Yeah. I think that was all really amazing. Cynthia knows much more about the actual hormonal stuff than I do. The only thing I would add is that focusing on nutrient-rich food, I think can be really, really helpful. I mean, if you think about it, like pregnancy cravings in particular, obviously there's the the craving for actual energy because you're growing another human being inside of you. But, you know, people get very specific cravings and, you know, that's likely because the body is needing a very, you know, more of a specific nutrient that it's associating with that craving, you know, for better or worse, which kind of goes back to Mark Shaxker's book that I mentioned earlier about how these things can be misleading. Like the signals can signal to the body that they have a certain nutrient in them when they actually don't. But in any case, the reason I am talking about that is, you know, you get cravings from pregnancy and now she's comparing it to that saying this is worse though. Focusing on the protein is great. And also focusing on the nutrient rich sources of foods, I think can be really helpful. So, you know, things like egg yolks and liver and salmon and there's a study that came out recently that I, I want to find. I've, I've heard Chris Kresser talking about it on a few shows and it's, I got to find it. Apparently it's a list of, they recently came up with a, a nutrient score for all of these foods based on like mineral density and things like that. And it was shocking. He was talking about, it, I think on Rob Wolf's podcast and he was talking about like the number score shift from like, I think the top was like liver and something else. And then like the shift down to the next foods was so huge because basically there's a few foods that are just overwhelmingly nutrient rich. And yeah, so I just wanted to add that piece about the food, but I think Cynthia's advice was very helpful. And yours as well. Awesome. 
Shall we answer one more question? Sure. This is from Jessica. Subject is type 1 diabetes and intermittent fasting. Hi, I've been intermittent fasting for a month and a half now. I started in the hopes of losing some weight. I have an added challenge in that I am a type 1 diabetic for 13 years now. I take precautions during my fast and always monitor my blood sugar. My question is about taking insulin during my fasts. Especially in the mornings, the dawn effect makes my sugars climb and I don't hesitate to take insulin to correct it. I was curious if this breaks my fast and stops the benefit of it. Of course, I won't stop correcting no matter what the answer is, but I'm still technically getting anything out of it while I'm doing this. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jessica, for your question. And I'm actually glad to circle back to this question because it's I felt like I was going on a tangent earlier about the nuance of the breaking the fast question. And I forgot that this question was in here because this is the reason I like to emphasize that nuance. She wants to know if she's getting anything out of her fasting by taking insulin and does insulin you know, stop the benefits of the fast? So, well, now I'm going to add further nuance to the nuance. <laughs> so you are still fasted. If you're not taking in food, you are still fasted. And especially in your situation, Jessica, where you're type 1 diabetic and you must be monitoring and addressing and for lack of a better word, controlling your blood sugar levels with exogenous insulin. That I mean, that's just the way it has to be. And it's not breaking your fast. It's not going to make you not fasted. The nuance I wanted to add to it because she's saying, does it stop the benefits? So one could argue in general, stepping a little bit apart from Jessica's question, that insulin release can make people, especially if if they're in the fat burning state and then they release insulin, then it can kind of turn off the ease of using the fat stores for fuel. So it can have that, you know, negative effect to the fast. But I mean, everything, I don't want to say everything, but you're still getting the, you know, the autophagy, like we talked about earlier, you're getting the low mTOR, the low IGF-1 signaling, the reduced inflammation. I don't want to make a blanket statement, but it's really like this insulin piece, which is like the one thing that's being affected, but it's very different releasing insulin fasted compared to while eating. For people with type 1 diabetes, you have to take insulin the way you're taking it. Keep taking it. You are still getting the benefits from the fast. So I would not stress about that. What are your thoughts, Cynthia? I'm a little conflicted. I have to be honest with you. Typically, I like to look at the questions before we sit down and record, and I didn't have that luxury this week. It's been super busy. A lot of my patients, when they start using insulin, start gaining weight. And so, you know, it it could be very challenging when you are trying to lose weight and you are using injectable insulin because, you know, your, your body doesn't have endogenous, doesn't have the endogenous ability to secrete insulin. As a type one, you have an autoimmune issue and that means the beta cells are, are destroyed. And so it, I really kind of sit in a kind of a neutral position. I'm, I'm not one direction or the other, but I, I think it can be challenging to be type one, to be using injectable forms of insulin and trying to lose weight simultaneously I think it's a very sticky wicket. I I would probably endeavor to connect with some of my endocrinology friends because, you know, from my perspective, it 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 has always been the case that by the time my patients are using insulin, they're generally struggling to 
they're usually struggling with weight loss resistance to some extreme or another. And so I think the diet has to really be dialed in. If you're, you know, counting your carbohydrates, if you're ketogenic or low carb, I think that will definitely improve things. But type one is very different than type two. Type two diabetes is a lifestyle issue, generally from too much carbohydrate, inadequate amounts of protein intake. So I'm going to have to sit on the fence and I'll, I'll definitely on one of our subsequent podcasts, I will do a little bit of digging and see if I can, if I can rectify or change my opinion. But I I think it's, it's going to be a little bit challenging to lose weight. I totally missed that in the beginning about, I started in the hopes of losing weight. I didn't even like focus on that in my answer. And I think that's a, a really, really good salient point. And so maybe just for the purpose of our discussion right now, because that's, I'm really glad you brought that up. And I I do agree. Rather than focusing on the insulin and that being the hindrance to the weight loss, if Jessica, she doesn't talk at all about what she's eating or the diet that she's on, it's very possible. Even I know she's type 1 diabetic, not type 2, but it's very possible that she could find a diet that would, you know, make her have just not have as many issues with the blood sugar spikes and actually reduce in general her her insulin use. So, you know, often people think low carb for that, but then just to play devil's advocate or throw in the contrary opinion, you have, you know, Cyrus and Robbie who wrote a book called Mastering Diabetes that I've had on my show. And are they both type one diabetic? I think they're both type. One of them is type one for sure. I think they're both type one. I think I have to double check that. They actually manage their diabetes with a high carb, low fat diet. So it's very possible that a dietary approach could maybe be the best of both worlds in helping reduce the amount of insulin needed in the first place. So then Jessica doesn't run into this problem that Cynthia is talking about where weight loss becomes, you know, a very difficult issue while taking exogenous insulin. Any other thoughts? No, I am going to reserve my opinion and do a little bit of research. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. I am Melanie Avalon. Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. The show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash 289. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. I will just plug again. If you want to get the latest for my berberine, definitely text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. I am super duper excited about that. And yes, I think that is all the things. So everybody have a fabulous Halloween and we will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.